Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we are coming to the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse, which is the last of the five major discourses that are in the Gospel of Matthew, and they serve as five pillars on which the entire Gospel is based. And so we will be looking at uh, verses 31 through 46 of Matthew chapter 25. These are the words of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats He will set on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of my, these my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God, our Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open up your word to us, or else we will not understand it. Bring it to us with power and conviction and strength, that we might be your faithful disciples in this day in which you have called us to live. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began looking at Jesus as the judge. And we're following up on that this week. We looked at the big picture aspects of this much understood passage uh, last week. And we saw that Christ's judging of the nation is not a one-time event. Rather, it is a historical process that began 2,000 years ago in the first century. After Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and sat down on his throne. And it manifested itself for the first time when Christ brought judgment in accordance with his own prophecies in the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD. And it is a judgment of the nations that continues throughout history until it is perfected and completed on the last day. That is the day of Christ's final advent. That's the day of his bodily return. And that is the day of the great resurrection of all mankind either unto eternal life for the righteous or unto eternal damnation for the unrighteous. Remember, 
what Jesus told the disciples back in Matthew chapter 16, using language very much like the judgment language of this passage. The Son of Man, he said, will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we want to avoid the two great ditches, the ditch uh, on one side of the road is the full preterist ditch, which sucks everything back into the first century and says there's no more return of Christ to look forward to, no final judgment, no final resurrection to look forward to. We certainly want to avoid that because that view is not only mistaken, it is outside the historic Christian faith. It denies all the way back to the Apostles' Creed. But we also want to avoid the much more uh, popular ditch today, which is... Uh, very widespread in, uh, in evangelicalism. And that is one that's been influenced by dispensationalism, which wants to take everything and push it off to the final return of Christ. That all judgment awaits then, the reign of Christ awaits then, uh, the kingdom awaits then. Everything is pushed off to the end. Now that one is within the historic Christian faith, but, uh, but it still has a debilitating effect upon our understanding of the kingship of Christ, his present lordship, and what serving him and carrying out the Great Commission means. Both of those ditches avoid uh, denying to Jesus Christ a full victory. The full preterist view gives uh, Jesus Christ victory in the first century, but it denies him victory after that point. He wins in history at one point in time, but he loses. He doesn't have full victory in eternity. The dispensational view has the opposite effect. It has Jesus winning in eternity, but he doesn't win in history. History becomes a stalemate between Jesus and the devil, and history comes to an end when Christ has finally had enough, and he knocks the chessboard into the air, and he says, that's it, game over. He wins in history, and he wins in eternity, but not in history. The Bible presents the view that Jesus wins completely, totally, all the time. Jesus wins in history, and Jesus wins in eternity. And so that is the view, and we looked at a number of passages last week that show that. So this is a historical process that is perfected and culminated in the final judgment on the last day. Now today I want to focus on another aspect of Jesus' words that are very prevalent in this passage, but also tend to be missed by us as modern evangelical Christians. And that is this. God's household which the New Testament tells us is the church. You can find that in Ephesians 2.19 and 1 Timothy 3.15. The church is referred to as the household of God. God's household, the church, is a place of comfort and encouragement and fellowship with God and His people. But it is also a place of judgment where people who have a true abiding faith and commitment to Christ and His people are sorted out and separated from those who don't. Let me say that again. God's household, the church, is a place of comfort and encouragement and fellowship with God and His people. But it is also a place of judgment where people who have a true abiding faith and commitment to Christ and His people are sorted out and separated from those who do not. Now, how do I get that out of this text? Well, simply this. The judgment that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 25, dividing sheep from goats, 
is a judgment within the covenant community. Sheep and goats, you see, are both sacrificial animals under the Mosaic law. They were both animals that God's people were authorized to bring as substitutes, as representatives for themselves when they presented offerings and sacrifices to the, law, to the Lord. So sheep and goats both were representatives of God's people in the Old Testament. It was a sheep or a lamb that the people brought on the Passover, which is one of the uh, most beautiful pictures of the death of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and that was in the Old Testament. But one of, one of the other strongest pictures of Jesus under the Old Testament economy was the Day of Atonement. And what was the sacrificial animal on the Day of Atonement? A goat. In fact, two goats. And so you see both lambs and goats were sacrificial animals. They represented, in fact, on the Day of, uh, the day of Atonement and on Passover, they actually represented the Lord Jesus himself. And of course, they represented the individual worshiper who was coming to God. So you see, in the Old Testament typology and symbolism, sacrificial animals, such as sheep or goats, were used to represent God's people, while predatory animals, such as wolves or bears, were used to represent those who were outside of the household of God, outside of God's covenant people. We have Jesus himself using this typological language in the famous passage of the Good Shepherd passage in John chapter 10. Jesus there says the Good Shepherd gives his life for who? For the sheep. What's the sheep stand for? For God's people. But the hireling sees the wolf coming and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. So Jesus himself is appealing to that Old Testament typology there. So separating sheep from goats is a separation process within God's flock. That is, within the community of those who profess faith in the one true God and who profess, profess to be his one true people. Jesus' words here in our passage in Matthew 25 echo Ezekiel chapter 34 quite closely. In that chapter, God speaks of the coming new covenant and the salvation that he is going to bring to his people. And he uses as a foreshadowing of what he's going to do, the return of Israel to the land in, uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezekiel was written during the Babylonian captivity. And God is saying, I'm going to regather Israel. I'm going to save Israel. I'm going to bring them back to the land. I'm going to bring them back to the pasture where they're going to have uh, peace. But that was a picture of what was going to be accomplished through Christ in the New Covenant. But listen to the language that God uses in Ezekiel 34. I will feed my flock. I will make them lie down. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But listen as he goes on. As for you, O my flock, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you, some of you, have pushed with side and shoulder. You have butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. 
So at the same time, he's saying that I'm going to seek the lost. I'm going to find the lost. I'm going to bind up the broken, which is what a shepherd does. And I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to save them from all their predators. He says he's not just going to have to, to guard them and save them from wolves, who are obviously wolves out there. He's also going to have to bring a judgment and a sorting out within the flock. He's going to have to judge between rams and goats. He's going to have to judge between sheep and sheep, fat sheep and lean sheep. And he says there's certain sheep that act more like wolves. They, they, they butt other sheep out of the way. They push them out of the way. They don't allow them to be fed. In other words, with sheep like that, who needs wolves? That's what he's saying. There are sheep who don't act like sheep. And I'm going to judge between those sheep and the sheep who do act like sheep. That's all part of this process of salvation. And you can see Jesus speaking very much the same way in our passage in Matthew 25. So God says that saving his flock involves judging between sheep and sheep. And the criteria of judgment is how the sheep have treated the other sheep. The criteria of judgment is how the sheep have treated the other sheep. Now, what did this actually look like back in the first century when it was first applied? In the first century, there were two competing groups who professed faith in the one true God and who claimed to be his one true people. Okay? Two different groups in the first century who professed faith in the one true God of Israel and who claimed to be his one true people. On the one hand, you had Christless Judaism, who rejected Jesus and persecuted his disciples. You read about that all through the book of Acts. On the other hand, you had the Christian church, who received Jesus as Messiah and who served his disciples. Now, this contest between these two groups, who were both claiming to be, you know, faith in the one true God, and who are both claiming to be the true household of God, this is portrayed in the book of Revelation as a contest between two women, both of whom claim to be the true bride of God. One of the, woman, one of the women, uh, Revelation tells us, is the harlot. She's not the true bride of God. She's really a harlot. She's not faithful to God. And she is wealthy and luxurious. The other woman is the virgin, who is pure and faithful. But she is oppressed and persecuted. And that's exactly a picture of what you see happening in the book of Acts. Jesus, by bringing his prophesied judgment and destruction upon apostate Jerusalem in 70 AD, he rendered judgment in favor of his true people. And he revealed to the world his true bride, the Christian church, which is the true heir to the faithful remnant of Old Testament Israel. Now, all of that is what Daniel chapter 7 describes as the saints receiving the kingdom of God, which is what Je Jesus echoes in our uh, text in verse 34, when he says the saints, those, the sheep on his right hand, will inherit the kingdom. Now, you remember, Daniel chapter 7 is a key passage because it is the passage where the name Son of Man comes to from, which is the name that Jesus always used for himself. Other people called Jesus lots of things. Lord, Rabbi, Teacher, Savior, Satan, Demon-Possessed, uh, Murderer, Rabbalizer, all these kind of things. But the name that Jesus always called himself was Son of Man. 
Now, son of man is the one that Daniel saw in a vision in Daniel chapter 7. He says, I saw in a vision and behold one like the son of man coming on the clouds, coming where? Not to earth, but to heaven, to the ancient of days. And he came before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom shall never end. The New Testament tells us that is a description of the ascension of Jesus Christ. That was when Jesus was crowned king. Now, but the, the vision goes on. It continues. And the same powers that Daniel saw that were uh, after the Son of Man he sees persecuting the saints of the Most High after the Son of Man has received the kingdom. He goes on, he says, The same horn, the same power, was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So you have a two-step process of Jesus and his people receiving the kingdom. First, Jesus is rejected and persecuted and killed, but God vindicates him. God displays to the world his judgment in favor of Jesus by the resurrection and the ascension, and Jesus receives the kingdom. Then you have Jesus' people a few years later, specifically 40 years later, following in Jesus' footsteps. They own the name of Christ, they're rejected, they're persecuted, they are killed. But then God renders judgment in their behalf in the destruction of Jerusalem when God says, Christless Judaism, that is not my people. Christless anybody is not my people. My true people is the Christian church, those who have received my son, those who believe in his name, those who own him and who own his people. So... Separating sheep from goats is a process Christ employs throughout history, sorting out his disciples to reveal those who have true, lasting faith, faith that overcomes, faith that conquers through hardship and persecution, and those who have a shallow, surfacey faith that grows cold and turns away during times of hardship and persecution. <clears throat> now, Paul tells Timothy, he says, some people's sins are evident before they die, before they go to be judged. Others follow them to judgment. In other words, sometimes you can tell very clearly the wheat from the tares, sheep from goats, and so forth ahead of time. Other times, you can't on the ground. Jesus, obviously, always can tell. And what that means is there's a lot of times in church history when things are not brought to a crisis point, like they like they were in the first century. And it's not obvious and evident. Wheat, who's the wheat, who's the tares, who's the sheep, who's the goats, and so forth. That's not obvious. But you don't have to worry because God knows. He knows. And he will infallibly sort it out. But there are punctuated times in history, like in the first century, when Jesus, the reigning king, brings things to a head. And remember that the, the Greek word for judgment is the word we get crisis from. Crisis is the Greek word for judgment. We get crisis from it. God uses crisis to reveal who's who. There are punctuated times in history when Jesus anticipates the final judgment by bringing about a crisis that makes obvious in history who the true disciples are who have a deep 
abiding faith that conquers through hardship, and those who have a shallow, surfacy faith that turns away in hardship. He made it obvious in the first century. There are other times in history when he makes it obvious as well. And we, in fact, may be living in such a time. Because the lines, the dividing lines, are becoming clearer and clearer and clearer in our culture. When Jesus brings about a dividing crisis, he always brings about a particular issue. And the issue won't be, is Jesus Lord and Savior? But it will be tantamount to that in that historical setting. The dividing issue in the first century was this. Are Gentiles included fully in the people of God solely by faith in Jesus Christ? Or do they have to become circumcised and have to become Jews first? That was the issue in the first century, the dividing line. And all of those ultimately who identified and had true faith in Jesus Christ said, the Gentiles come in solely on the basis of faith. In our day, it really looks like, if Jesus brings about this crisis, the dividing issue is going to be marriage and sexuality. See, what Jesus does is he creates what appears to be a secondary issue. But in the historical context, it really lines up directly with who is willing to pay a price to follow Jesus and who is not. Jesus makes it to where in the first century, if you believe that Gentiles came in and became the people of God solely in the, on the basis of faith in Jesus, you paid a price. You paid a price. And particularly the Jewish Christians paid a price. They lost their jobs. They were kicked out of the synagogues. They couldn't, nobody would do business with them anymore. They lost their lives as they knew them. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Solely because they said Gentiles come in. Solely on the basis of faith in Christ. There was a price to be paid for standing with Jesus, for standing with his true people. Some are willing to pay that price, others are not. And that's how you begin to see the difference historically between sheep and goat, between wheat and tares. In our day, increasingly, there is a price to be paid if you're going to stand with the word of God when it comes to marriage and sexuality. There's already a cost. Psychologically, emotionally, you're going to be derided. You're going to be made fun of. You're not going to get a fair hearing. You're not going to be listened to. You're going to be castigated. You're going to be shunned. That's already the case. In fact, it's already the case that people are starting to lose their jobs. There have been in the news people losing jobs because they contributed five, six, ten years ago to a group that supported traditional marriage. There was a high official with Google recently was in the news. It came out that he contributed, I don't know, a hundred bucks or something like that you know, a few years ago to a, a political action group that stood for preserving traditional marriage. Fired him. Google fired him for that. So, there's already a cost. And we don't know where Jesus is going to go with this. But if it continues to escalate, the cost is going to go up more and more and more. But I want you to see a couple of really important things here. In these kind of situations, 
The key criteria of how Jesus sorts people out is whether they have identified with and served his true people, his true family, the church. Whatever you have done or not done to Jesus's, to the least of Jesus' children, you have done or not done to Jesus. Now, this was the point that Jesus made to Saul of Tarsus, who would become the great Gentile apostle, apostle of the Gentiles, rather. You remember Jesus struck him down on the Damascus road as he was in the midst of persecuting God's people. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting these people? I have feelings for these people. I like these people. No, he says, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus adds, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Apparently a very strange statement. Off topic, it would seem. We see two very important principles here. We see Jesus saying, first of all, Paul, you need to understand this. Whatever you do to mine, whatever you do to those who belong to me, you do to me. Number two, Paul, you're fighting the inevitable. You're kicking against the goads. You're trying to resist a juggernaut, which is something that made no sense at all in the first century because the, the Christians have nothing. They don't have any power. They don't have any wealth. They don't have anything. They're persona non grata. It's the Christ, Christless Judaism as represented by Herod's magnificent temple and by the magnificent city of Jerusalem and Roman power in cahoots with them. They had all of the power. If you looked and sized it up, you say, who's the winner and who's the losers? Who are those trying to kick against the goads? Who are those who are trying to resist the inevitable? You'd say, well, it's these poor Christians. I mean, give it up. Give it up. You don't have a chance. You're resisting the inevitable. You're going to be run over by a millstone here. You're going to be crushed. Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. And Paul it's hard to kick against the goads. No matter how weak this little mustard seed of a kingdom here may look, no matter how powerless this little pinch of leaven may look, it will conquer the world. Because Jesus has already won the decisive victory. And once that little pinch of leaven goes into the recipe, there's no stopping it. It's all done. It's all done. It's just a matter of time. So Jesus says, Paul, you're the one fighting the inevitable. And number two, whatever you do to the puniest of these Christians, Paul, you do to me. So again, we see God's house, the church, is a place of blessing. It is a place of comfort. It is a place of encouragement. It is a place of fellowship with God and his people, but it is also a place of judgment. It is a place of sorting out. Remember what Peter said to the Jewish Christians shortly before the judgment began, the Jewish woman war that would end up in the destruction of Jerusalem. He said, it is time for judgment to begin. Where? In the household of God. That's what he said. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. God always begins judgment with his own children. That's where he starts. He never starts out in the world. He always starts with his own kids. Any good father does the same. You know, a mayor who's mayor of a town, and there's a youth problem in the town, and it turns out 
some of his kids are involved in it, where does a good mayor always start? With his own kids, not with everybody else's. So judgment always begins there. When Jesus is about to do some new thing in history, like he did in the Protestant Reformation, for example, when Jesus is about to do some great new thing in history, it is always, always, always preceded by Jesus bringing a judgment and a sorting out among his own family, among his own people. He begins judgment there. He uses the same crises to sort out, to purify his people, to deepen their faith, to deepen their love for him and one another. And then he brings about a reformation. In other words, God's people turning to him in a new way, with a new conscientiousness and a, and a new fervor. And he brings about re revival. He pours out his spirit. He causes his people to love him, to rejoice, to delight in fellowship with him and following him and serving him. Paul rejoiced that he was worthy to suffer for Jesus. Peter and John rejoiced in the book of Acts that they were counted worthy to be beaten for the name of Jesus. That's a different mindset. That's a different mindset. I mean, I confess to you, I don't have that mindset right now. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to see my family uh, not knowing where their next meal is coming from. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to even have people make fun of me. It's a different mindset when Jesus' disciple starts counting it a privilege to suffer for his name. But when you have Jesus, he, he brings about this sorting out and this judgment, and he pours out his spirit on his people, but it never stays there. It spills out. Whenever you have revival in a country, revival in a culture, revival in a community, it's always a spilling out. Spilling out of what? Spilling out of God's house. He fills it up so that it pours over. And so you always have this sorting out and judgment beginning with the household of God whenever Jesus is about to do some great new thing. Remember... And this will help us understand this. Remember where the temple was built. And I'm talking about Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was built on the site of the threshing floor of a Gentile named Ornan. He was a Jebusite. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. The temple was built on the site of the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite Gentile. Now, what happens at a threshing floor? That is where wheat is separated from chaff. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. Who's his threshing floor? It's not the Romans. It's not the Egyptians. It's not the pagans. It's not the Gentiles. His threshing floor in the first century was his people, his household. It was Israel. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, how is wheat separated from chaff? Well, number one, they beat it. That's crisis. That's crisis. They beat it. Number two, they throw it up into the wind. Okay, that's why he has a winnowing fan. If you don't have any wind, Jesus creates his own wind. That's all a picture of crisis. How does that separate wheat from chaff? For this reason, wheat has weight, chaff 
does not. Now, what is weight associated with in the Bible? Glory. The Hebrew word for glory literally means heaviness. When it says God is glory, all glory to God is saying God is very heavy. Glory is heavy. That it begins to change the way we think. You know, we think of glory as being very light, non-material. It floats up. The Bible says glory is heavy. Glory is very solid. It's heaviness. Wheat has heaviness. Wheat has glory. Chaff does not. Wheat has substance. You see, it's the glory of God dwelling upon us that gives us true substance, that gives us true heaviness in terms of glory. And that's what calls the, causes the wheat to fall through the threshing floor and causes the chaff to just be blown away in the wind. Whatever is the latest wind, whatever wind happens to be blowing on that day. And so that's what it shows. Who are the disciples who have substance? who have heaviness to them because of the glory of God upon them. Those disciples have a faith that lasts even when it costs, even when it hurts. That's heaviness. That's substance. There are other disciples who have a surfacey, shallow faith. They make profession. There's no substance. There's no heaviness there. There's nothing to anchor them in times of hardship and persecution, and they blow away with whatever wind happens to be blowing at that time. So God's, uh, the, the, the temple of God in the Old Testament was built on this threshing floor. That is where God instructed Solomon to build it. Why did God tell Solomon to build it there? Well, because that is where God had told David to build an altar. Why did God tell God, uh, David to build an altar there? Because that is where God in his mercy told the angel of death to stop killing people because of David's sin. David had sinned by ordering a census. He wanted to act like the pagan kings and see how powerful he was. He wanted to count up his army and see how powerful he was. God had instructed, you don't do that because your power doesn't come from how big your army is. Your power comes from me. So David did that. The plague came upon the people as a result. And the angel of death is going through killing people. And then God in his mercy tells him to stop. Where does he stop? He stops at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David is repentant. He's sorrowful for his sin. God says, go and build an, uh, an altar on that threshing floor. David goes and he buys it from Ornan the Jebusite. He builds an altar there. And then God tells Solomon, David's son, that's where the temple goes. You see, God's saying something here. He's saying, my house is a threshing floor. Now, that's not often the way we think of the church as a threshing floor, but that's exactly what God says it is. Now, what does that mean? As we turn to application, it means this. God's house is a good place. It's the best place. God's house is where death stops and life begins, right? That's where the angel of death stops. God's house is where mercy begins. God's house is where heaven and earth meet. God's house is where God and sinners meet by God's own decree. God's house is a good place, but it is also a messy place. A threshing floor is a messy place. I uh, was talking to my mom this week, and I mentioned this to her, 
and she could remember when she was a little girl, she grew up on a farm, and she can remember living till age 13, they didn't even have electricity. So she remembers that, she remembers outhouses and so forth, but she also remembers uh, threshing places, threshing floors. And uh, she said that you, you couldn't even see or breathe because of the amount of dust that was stirred up through the process. And so God's house is a messy place. So when we're asking people to come to the church of the living God, we're asking them to come to a great place, but a messy place. Because this is where God deals with people the way they really are. This is where people, this is where sinners, like you, like me, each of whom is a mess, are brought together into one big mess, so that God can love us and straighten us out. So, the church is a place where sinners are piled up together. Now, who, what made us possibly think that this was going to be a clean place? Each of us is a mess. Jesus says, all you, mess, all you messes come together into one big pile. So we come together with all of our sin, all of our instinctive sinful reactions, all of our skewed perspectives, all of our self-deception. Jesus says, come all together, children, so I can deal with you the way you really are. And now we're all in close quarters. And we're all crammed up against one another. Do you think some sin might happen? Do you think Jesus might bring some sin out? Yes. And this is where we tend to stumble. Because, you know, the way each of us thinks is this. It's kind of like the dirt in our house. We think, well... It, it may not be perfectly clean, it may be dirt, but it's my dirt. We're a lot more comfortable around our own dirt than we are around somebody else's dirt. Okay? And so the way we instinctively think is, you know, as a Christian, I may be a mess, but it's my mess. I may be dirty, but it's my dirt. I don't want to be around other people's mess. I don't want to be around other people's dirt. Well, Jesus says to us this. You need other people's mess, and you need their dirt. Because without it, you can't see how much of a mess you really are. Because we're all self-deceived. We need other people's mess. We need their dirt so we can see what a mess we are. And Jesus says to us, you need to learn to, learn, you need to, learn to love people and to serve people that are a mess like you, only different. You need to love people and serve people who are a mess like you, only different. That's all part of Jesus straightening you out and making him, making you like him. Do you really want to know God? Do you really want to have life? There's only one place to go. It's a mess, but there's only one place. And that is the church, the one true people of the one true God. And let me close with this. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably been through at least one bad church experience. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably been through several bad church experiences. And you found yourself thinking, man, I don't know if I want to go to church anymore because I never hurt this much out there in the world. I never got hurt this much in the workplace. 
You see, nobody can hurt you like somebody you love. And that's when you get close to people. Where does that happen? Well, in your family and in God's family, the church. That's where it happens. So most of us have been through at least one bad church experience. We need to ask ourselves then, because a lot of time the bad church experiences don't just come from people being a mess. It comes from a particular local church being a mess and really beginning to get things wrong. And we need to ask ourselves, what makes the church a messy place but a good place to be? Other than the fact that Jesus has said, this is my church, I'm working through my church, and I'm not working any other way. Here's the difference, I think. When you have leadership and a congregation that does not forget that they are a threshing floor, which is a messy place. It's a messy place where good things happen. And when you have church leadership and a church congregation that remembers that everybody there, by definition, is a mess. That's humility. And God says he gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. And I think that's the difference that makes a church a messy place, but still a great place of blessing and a good place to be. And that's where we want to be as a local church. We want to worship God as best and biblically as we can, but that will not change the fact that we are a mess. We want to have our doctrine as good and biblical as we can, but that won't change the fact that we individually and together are a mess. We want to have our church government and our church activities and our small groups and our fellowship as biblical and rich as we can, but none of that will change the fact that we are a mess. Say it after, repeat after me. The king's congregation is a mess. Okay? But so is every other church. Remembering that, by God's grace, will keep us humble. And staying humble, by God's grace, will keep us under his blessing. And there's no other way. There's no other way. Now, another way to come at this, and this is my last thought for you, another way to come at this is to, it's the opposite. You, you hear very popular among evangelicals today, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? Which is a great question to ask. But there's another great question to ask. What would Satan do? If I were Satan, what would I do? This is what I would do if I were Satan. Regardless of what church I was dealing with, Regardless of what its strengths are, regardless of its size, large or small, regardless of how much money it has, rich or poor, I would ask myself one question only. How can I make this church proud? If I succeed in that, they're done. That's the only thing I need to know. If they're big... If they're rich, that's where I'm going. I'm going to make them proud of the fact that they're big and they're rich. If they have lots of activities, they have this, they have this ministry and that one, I'm going to make them proud of that. If they're a small church that doesn't have that stuff, I'm going to make them proud of that. We're small. We're the few. The few, the... The Marines, yeah. 
We're the Marines of churches, yeah, that's it. You know, you can be proud of anything. We don't have any money, we're really small. We've preached it all the way down to the pure remnant. Yeah, I mean, we'd be proud of anything. Um, but that would be my one question. How can I make this particular congregation proud? Because then they're done. I have them at that point. And I think that's exactly what Satan tries to do. And so I think that is our task. We must stay humble, which we have to understand. I don't care who you are. I don't care how blessed you are, how intelligent you are, how many talents you have, how much giftedness you have from the Holy Spirit. And there is considerable here. You're a mess. Okay? I don't care who your elders are, who your pastors are. They're a mess. And it's only by remembering that and remembering that we're a mess. And Jesus has called us here to deal with that. That is the only way to stay humble and to stay under the blessing of God. And when we do that, we're not just going to identify with Jesus. We're going to identify with one another. Opportunities to serve one another. These principles he talks about here, about, you know, in prison and visiting and feeding and giving drink and so forth. Of course, it has applications for the whole world. But Jesus is specifically talking here about his disciples. Because if you identified with his disciples in the first century, you paid, a, you paid a price. If there's a Christian in jail and you went and visited them to comfort them or to bring them something, what are you risking? They're going to say, ah, look who's visiting. Well, let's see who signed in the sign-in sheet here down at the jail. Aha. Now you may lose your job. There was a cost to be paid. Our love for Jesus and our faith in him will always be shown in that we identify with one another, people whose faces we know, whose messes and sin we know, that we serve them. Jesus said, not even one cup of water will I forget. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.